Blog Talk Radio. There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an Asian, see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. They ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because you don't, blacks don't have any businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Blacks won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourselves up. I told that five-story building, you're setting yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economics. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industries. Control buildings and industry, and put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics <clears throat> with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 or 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations who got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money on the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician, with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor, you t- the fourth floor then is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries <clears throat> and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35 thousandths of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75 or 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't. You got about one black TV station. And you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad-mouthing you and O'Reilly. They can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you going to do? You can't respond. You can't even communicate with your own people because you, you don't have an economic base. 51% of all the prisons in the United States are black people. You know, even though you only make up 12% of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate them. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, over, when they, when they over incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march, a demonstration. We're going to march. March for what? Who cares? Marching, they never change anything. All right, it's time for another installment. This is my house. We're ooh, got a little technical glitch right now. Let me see if I can straighten that out uh, by refreshing my board. And um, okay, today's podcast is uh, titled "Coffee Entrepreneurs and All Inclusive Coffee Villages." Uh, 619-768-2945 is calling that number, but let's continue with our intro. If white immigrants can come to this country 50 years ago with nickels and dimes and no education and come here and pool their little nickels and dimes and no education 
into, with, and set up little stores, develop these stores into larger stores, develop this into an industry, which creates job opportunities for whites. Since Lincoln was supposed to have freed the black man a hundred years ago, and today the black man, according to the government economist, has spending power of $20 billion per year. We feel that with the black man spending $20 billion a year, not setting up any businesses, not creating any industry, not creating any job opportunities for his own kind, he's not in a moral position to point the finger today at the white man and tell the white man that he's discriminating against him for not giving him a job in factories that he, has, he himself set up. If the black man has $20 billion, and these so-called Negro leaders are such geniuses that they can integrate white restaurants and integrate white factories and integrate, force themselves into that which the white man has set up, they should use this same ingenuity to show the black people how to pool our wealth and set up something of our own. And then we won't have to force our way into his anymore. One more thing I would like to point out concerning what he said about 125th Street. We don't waste our time on 125th Street, but you can reach more people in the street who want to change than you can in the bourgeoisie society, the bourgeoisie church, and the bourgeoisie circles. We, our program is directed toward the man in the street. So we spend our time in the street, and what we do with that man, instead of trying to change the white man in your mind and make, make you accept us, we change the mind of the black man and make him accept himself. And as soon as he accepts himself, He'll solve his own problem. He won't be trying to force himself into your factory and into your bedroom and into your kitchen. Thank you.
Okay. All right. That ran out on me real quick. Um, all right. Today's program, we're picking up yesterday. Today's program is titled Coffee Entrepreneurs and All-Inclusive Coffee Villages. Now, yesterday, matter of fact, I need to get my pen out. Uh, we had one of our listeners, I'm getting ready to open up his mic, um, gave us uh, some real good information. And I went back at least two, probably three times for the replay of our daily podcast. Um, but it wouldn't let me, we did like a two-hour program, actually a little bit over two hours. But it wouldn't let me fast forward all the way to the two hours. I mean, you know, through the two hours to 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 get it. So while we and I've got some audio to play for today. So let me while we're at the beginning. Connie, I'm gonna open up your mic and uh good morning, Connie. Good morning. How you doing, brother LA? Fine, fine. Look, what what were those five pillars that you were talking about yesterday that every community needs? I remember housing was one of them. Mm-hmm. Transportation was another one. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I wasn't sure on the rest. Um, and that's why I tried, but it wouldn't let me fast forward for a whole two hours. So that's why I'm, I'm opening up your mic early. Okay, well, I'll so, put them uh, in the order of importance. i put them in the order of importance. Number one is food. Oh, okay. Number okay, two is clothing. clothing. Food, clothing, shelter. Transportation uh, and okay. anything concerning surrounding health care. Health care. Yeah. Food, clothing, shelter, okay. transportation, and health care. And in that order. Yes, sir. Okay. Because, hey, if you don't eat, you ain't going to survive. If you don't have any clothes yeah. on, you can't, you can't operate in this society. You got to have a roof right. over your head if you, uh, you know, if you're a human being, uh, a mammal and human being. You got to have a mode of transportation to get everywhere you need to go at. And you got to have got uh, a way of health care, of taking care of yourself. That's true. That's true. All right. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to close out your mic and go back because I got some audio for today for today's podcast, and we're going to get back into these five um, five fundamentals that you recommend, uh, suggested, which Jeff Bezos does not supply to people. So thank you for that. Oh, let me find. Like I say, today's podcast is titled uh, Coffee Entrepreneurs and All-Inclusive Coffee Villages, the live stream number 619-768-2945. Now, let's see. Uh, okay. Uh, in light of the um, thing that happened with Starbucks uh, in Philadelphia, um, and we were and Robin brought up uh, all inclusive communities yesterday because basically you could organize. There's a de facto, or there de facto communities within the Starbucks world. So. Um, we're not going to concentrate on Starbucks today or that case or whatever. 
but we're going to take a look at coffee entrepreneurs and then how to organize that into any kind of village or, uh, or community that you would like based on uh, the five uh, fundamental pillars that uh, Connie just gave us. So let's go to South Africa first. It was instant love when Sihle Magubani sipped on his first coffee. But starting South Africa's first black-owned coffee brand five years ago was no quick fix. Magubani dreamed of it as a teenager while working as a gardener to support his siblings. He was then a barista for 10 years before realizing his dream. For me, it was a um, privilege to get such a motivation to start. And it's never been easy. And obviously, there were, there's been up and down, and it's never been easy. But all the time, I just set myself a goal to push, keep on pushing. And um, you are right when you say it's not about the color, it's about the quality. Making the perfect cup of coffee is an art. The company roasts and produces coffee to perfection at its Johannesburg base. The Citrus Brew coffee is uh, mainly it's made um, locally, uh, but we also import the beans from Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania, Guatemala and Brazil. Then we do the blending here. We, all our beans are 100% Arabica. I wanted to create something that is locally made that can relate to South Africa. Sihle has what's considered to be the highest qualification in coffee making, an international barista certificate. With it, he is able to train other coffee artisans. We've managed to take about uh, six people and train them. And because I thought that um, giving back is it's what uh, I believe in. And uh, Giving back, if, if it wasn't an opportunity that I, uh, I got it through Roberto Monterrey, and he, if it wasn't him uh, giving me an opportunity to be trained, I wouldn't be where I am. So in the form of giving back, I, use, I train baristas. He wants to be able to share his talents and help other coffee entrepreneurs. We're busy with a lot of um, projects that we're putting it uh, in, in writing and in place where we can able to allow other people to own their own uh, coffee franchise and we can able to assist them with uh, and guide them with um, uh, different solutions. Magubani has big plans for Sihle's Brew. He wants to expand locally and take the brand to other parts of Africa and South America in the next five years. Julie Shara, CGTN, Johannesburg, South Africa. A new cafe has opened in Addis Ababa. It is called Bake and Brew. Inside, people enjoy freshly brewed coffee like in any cafe. But when you go upstairs into what they call the workshop, you see this is a co-working space. Owner Caleb Mickens wanted to create an environment where people could work for as long as they liked. We thought very carefully about how we designed the space, the tables, the chairs, to be somewhere where people could really enjoy it, work with other people, space to chat, and then we have social aspects, so we do monthly events. Beck and Brew is one of the five co-working spaces that have opened in the city in the past few years. To work in this space for a day costs nine US dollars, for a week thirty-seven dollars, and for a month one hundred and ten dollars. The rates uh, for offices in the city are, are, are growing higher and higher, and so actually it works out cheaper to, to rent a space here and actually get good internet as well, and so. That's one of the reasons, just the fact that it can be more affordable. In the city, a small office space can go for as much as $400 per month. Internet installation plus utilities make the price even higher. Dawit Tilahun is a transactions advisor. Even though he has an office in another part of Addis Ababa, he still prefers to work from bake and brew. Sometimes uh, when we want to 
kind of leave the office space and, uh, and find a creative place and a very refreshing one. We normally come to Bekembo because it uh, uh, sets a different mood. So we, we, we get it uh, to be a, a nice place to, to be creative, uh, get some fresh ideas. Many others who have become regular customers are attracted to this space beyond just the stable internet. I enjoy colors, very calm colors. As you can see here, it's very calm color and it's a good working environment. So I come here to blog or to edit videos. So it feels me good here to be here, you know, and it's really nice jazz music here. There's a great environment here and cultural diversity and plus there's an awesome restaurant downstairs, so they serve great coffee and food, and uh, we get the chance to work and enjoy some good meals, so I guess it's a perfect place for me. At full capacity, this space can accommodate up to 40 clients. The management, however, says the people are not limited to this area alone. They can as well go and work from downstairs in the restaurant. As the community that prefers these spaces grow, the founders are hoping to get new ideas to improve the co-working space and make it more comfortable. Koleta Onjohi, CGTN, in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. All right, now that that video, uh, that audio rather, uh, was about um, a coffee entrepreneur, uh, as the uh, uh, moderator just stated, or the reporter just stated, out of uh, Ethiopia, and the first one was out of Ethiopia. And uh, Howard Schultz, the guy who, um, I think it's Howard Schultz, started up Starbucks, I think I read somewhere where he got his idea uh, for Starbucks in part uh, from what he saw of the coffee culture, I believe I believe in Europe. Uh, then he also worked for a coffee company and he took some ideas from that. But uh, the last audio, because uh, – Throughout Africa, they do have, uh, and I love African innovation, um, that last audio of the charging rent. So, in the, you know, the, if you want to hang out there, uh, as people do in Starbucks, other coffee houses, or even bookstores, uh, that particular bookstore, I mean, excuse me, uh, but the audio we just played, Bacon Brew, Bacon Brew in uh, Addis Ababa, um, um, Ethiopia. They charge rent. All right, so people coming in, and I mean all kinds of people. Uh, as you heard, one guy was a blogger, students. I mean, it's just limited to your imagination. Um, and by charging rent, um, it makes it exclusive. I mean, when it comes to Coffee houses. So I, I, you, know, you might have something like that here in the United States, but I think, particularly after what happened with Starbucks uh, last week or the week before, whenever it was, you know, I think you might see something like that. Um, if not Bacon Brew, Bacon Brew's business model, like they charge rent or you can call it a membership whatever, and everybody's happy. Um, now, let's go to another coffee entrepreneur. This one, um, well, it's a, I call it a pop-up coffee cafe. My name is Eric Gordon, and I own Carabiner Coffee. It's a coffee shop that I run out of my van around the country. 
Give Me Your Coffee started because I was a climbing instructor, doing that for about five years, and it kind of got to the point where I was done doing that. But I still love the climbing community, obviously, and I uh, started to get into coffee a little bit more and realized that coffee could take me anywhere in the world and, have, and I could meet anybody that I ever wanted to, really. Um, so I figured if I could be the coffee guy for the climbing community, I would love to do that. I was looking to downsize life and really simplify things and start to travel more and climb. I bought the van off Craigslist after working uh, in a coffee shop for about eight months. Learned everything I could. That was the first coffee shop I ever worked in. It was feeling solid, so I quit that shop and I started my own coffee business. Breckenridge actually kicked me out for selling coffee uh, on the side of the road. The Forest Service found me and they're like, dude, first the, the town wouldn't give me a business license because they, they didn't allow any more mobile vendors, so I went outside of town to the outskirts to the scenic lookouts and started selling coffee there. The Forest Service found me and we're like, sorry dude, donezo. Um, so then I moved to Seattle and started doing the whole official food truck deal. Welcome to Old Blue. This is the van that I live in and I tour the country with and sell coffee. This is obviously the living room and uh, the coffee making area. This whole rig is solar powered, so I've got like a, a panel up top. Goal Zero makes all this happen. So all the coffee making stuff, the sound system. Got like a little home theater system uh, kind of tucked away in here. So that makes it really nice to listen to music. I usually have just a water jug in here under there. Uh, I have a coffee grinder, an electric kettle that I make pour-overs and aeropress with. When I'm just chilling, this is the setup in here. Uh, I usually have a cooler that I'm like sitting right here on and serving coffee on a table. But when I'm not, it's, it's kind of folded out like this. A few pillows, so I always make sure I have the uke because if you're gonna be on the road, you gotta sing about it for sure. When I'm sleeping, I actually developed this where the back of, of this uh, pops out, lays right here, so this, this entire area becomes a bed. Currently, this is where all the, the clothes are stored in here whenever I'm on tour. Cooking, um, to be honest, I actually, I do have like a, a jet boil and a double burner Coleman, but uh, most of the time I will just pull up to a grocery store, get some groceries, um, and eat right in the, in, in the parking lot of the grocery store. Just because I'm usually either traveling or like about to go camping for a week. And I'm just like, ah, it'd be nice to just like eat in the van. So sometimes I do that. Other times I actually, there's a little table, uh, as you'll see in the back of the van there, that I like to set up the whole kitchen situation. But in the winters, you definitely are just in here, you know, <laughs> sipping coffee and eating soup and stuff, for sure. One, one, one day I was selling coffee and this guy, he, he hands me this little tag and it says, the universe has a message for you, I love you. Yeah, this is the uh, coffee mug that my dad hitchhiked with for uh, an entire decade back in the 70s. Yeah, there's tons of stories attributed to that and it's kind of cool to have that with to, to, you know, just have kind of a little legacy between me and my dad of, of traveling and living on the road. Uh, He's definitely all about, and he, he's psyched that I chose to live in a van <laughs> and sell coffee, which is sweet. We're all going to die one day, and it might be tomorrow, it might be when you're 105. But um, I would say if you're not living the life right now that you are psyched to wake up and live, change it as soon as possible. Just, you know, if that means quitting your job or if it means tweaking some things, uh, getting rid of some negativity in your life, just, just go for it. And it might be hard at first, but in the end, do you want to live 
the best story that you thought you ever could? Or do you want to, you know, wake up when you're 90 and say, like, shit, I really should have done some different things. Just, you know, put it all out there. Live the dream. So that's what I would say to do. <laughs> with the van as there are with these old these old fans I've um, let's see like the other day I was going down uh, a mountain pass and my brakes started to smoke really hard so like you had to, you got to pull over and I literally was dumping Nalgene's on the on the two front brakes and then I just you know took a nap on the side of the road so that's kind of the average story of how I travel um, my my flashers don't work so um, and it's like a pull switch so I'm literally when I'm going up a mountain pass I'm in like second gear maybe going like 20 miles an hour and I'm manually flashing my my flashers um also the blinkers don't work or like they don't blink by themselves so I have to like flip the switch to blink either way yeah I mean the engine has blown up once for sure yeah like the huge like the alternator pulley literally cracked in half and just was whipping around in the in the engine compartment once I had to like run a red light and go park somewhere otherwise the, the van was going to start on fire so um This is Sarah Travis. Sarah is from Chicago and founded Brewhub, a mobile coffee and tea business last summer. But the city of Chicago refused to issue her a permit. After rounds of petitions and months of meetings, Sarah got nowhere with city officials. And so she decided to move south to Austin, Texas, where entrepreneurs like her are flourishing. I wanted to push that, you know, that idea that you can create a business without having a million dollars to build something out. In Austin, I was sitting in a little room filling out paperwork, and we just filled it all out, turned it in, gave them some money, and we had a permit. Over the last decade, Illinois' burdensome tax and regulatory climate has forced thousands of small business owners like Sarah to cut jobs or leave the state entirely. And yet, the very week Sarah registered her business in Texas, Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel visited Austin with a very peculiar message. The mayor of my city is in this new city that I'm going to be in, and he's telling everyone how great Chicago is and how we all need to move to Chicago and bring all the jobs and all the you know welcoming entrepreneurship. And, and I'm sitting there going, wow, like I'm right here. I'm in this city where you are now because you're making me be there because I can't physically stay where I want to stay. Sarah's initial goal was to help establish procedures for mobile vending in Chicago. She hoped to make Brewhub fully legitimate by the end of 2014 and began asking the city to certify her. And I honestly had no intentions of moving. I, I was very much set on we can make it work here and we're going to work really hard all winter. And, and we set a couple deadlines and those deadlines came and went. And it became more clear to us that we can always come home to Chicago um, and that's something that we definitely want to pursue. But Texas is ready for us. Although Sarah was able to find a supportive business environment in Texas, hundreds of mobile vendors across Chicago are forced to operate in a shadow market, facing the prospect of fines and harassment daily. Many are immigrant entrepreneurs bringing innovative flavors, chasing an American dream. All are satisfying customer demand and hoping only for the chance to work openly, without fear, to build their business and make a better life for themselves and their families. 
a minimal investment can get you a business and can really get you started, um, especially if a great idea. You know, we're helping push this, not just for us, because obviously I want my business to be here and to be legal, but it's more like it's, there's so many people who can be helped. It's time to cut the red tape and protect entrepreneurs' rights. Join our fight at IllinoisPolicy.org. Nigeria is the seventh largest coffee-producing nation in the world. Now, two brothers are tapping into this $98 billion industry with hopes of making Lagos the coffee capital of Africa. Brothers Ngozi and Chijoke Dozie set up Cafe Neo in 2012, investing $400,000 in four years. The chain has locations in several African countries, with over 10 in Nigeria alone. The word Neo means gift. In, um, in Swana, and it also means new in Latin. And so for us, we viewed coffee as a gift to the continent. We felt that through Cafe Neo, we could have the best African coffees produced by Africans, drunk in Africa. The brothers returned to Nigeria to fill a void in the country's growing returnee, expat, and coffee-loving community. We were always skeptical that Nigerians would take to coffee, but what we tried to replicate was that third space. So it wasn't just come and drink coffee, it's come and hang out, free Wi-Fi, meet people, jazz music playing in the background. So we were really offering that third space and coffee would be the catalyst that brings them here. Cafe Neo is not just about coffee, but also enabling a collaborative space for entrepreneurs to thrive. Welcome to Marvelous Market, one of the many community initiatives of Cafe Neo. Cafe Neo is inspiring a lot of entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs in Nigeria and hopefully in other parts of Africa. And I think it's through the fact that we are providing a platform for entrepreneurs to grow, host hackathons, the host competitions. You know, as we grow, there are more opportunities for people to come work, collaborate, um, and there are more opportunities for others to actually plug into. A cup of coffee and treats ranges from around 50 cents to $3 making them attractive to a diverse pool of coffee drinkers. If we want to set up a cafe new in London or New York, I mean, there's probably about 4,000 different you know, coffee chains, including Starbucks and, and a few other things. So you just get lost. But you start Cafe Neo in Nigeria, I can say we're the largest coffee chain in West Africa. With one coffee shop at a time, Cafe Neo hopes to dominate coffee spaces not only in Africa, but around the globe. I mean, there's definitely a coffee renaissance taking place in Africa. Um, we think that we're at the forefront. That's one of our goals, is to have in London, in Soho, a Cafe Neo store, and you have Nigerian roasted coffee, you have Tanzanian roasted coffee, and people are actually enjoying it as well. I can't think of anywhere better for an entrepreneur right now than, than Nigeria. It's a fantastic opportunity right now, but don't tell anyone. Let's, 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 let's enjoy the opportunities first. <laughs> Okay, good. Audio ran out. I thought it was going to be longer. All right, so uh, the audio before the one you just heard uh, was about a young lady um, who has a coffee business that she started in Chicago, but uh, the permitting and the, I, I guess the, po the regulation of it and the politics of coffee, uh, she couldn't do a sustainable coffee business in Chicago. Matter of fact, her her business model includes um, she delivers it. 
Sarah's her first name. She delivers coffee, coffee and tea. So you can call up and she'll get on her bike and she uh or modified bike and she'll deliver it. So as she stated she and that you know, that's an idea. If you can't if you're in an area where it's not sustainable but you still want to do that business and what she did was she moved. So she moved from Illinois, um to Austin, uh, Austin, Texas, and and is, and is doing well down there. Now, the other, um, the last video, that we, I mean, audio that we just played was um, a guy, a couple of brothers, as they stated, in Lagos, Nigeria. And in Nigeria, uh, the coffee market is a ninety-eight billion dollar market. That's just in uh, Nigeria. Now, for people listening, in today's podcast is titled Coffee Entrepreneurs and All-Inclusive Coffee Villages. You don't necessarily, if you have a business, you don't have to become a coffee entrepreneur, but you might want to look at using coffee, a marketing tool, for your business. I, I, I think I mentioned this yesterday. I know of a guy uh, in, down in the Caribbean. Uh, he has a little grocery store. And what he does is outside his grocery store, he has a little cafe or places where you can, you know, sit, eat, drink, whatever, or just talk. Um, and there's free coffee there all day. So he uses coffee as a marketing tool uh, to build relationships and a customer base for his uh, his uh, little market uh, that he has. So, you know, it's it's something that you can um, use as a marketing tool, which we're going to get in later. And like I say uh, on this podcast, as I also stated, um, at many of these coffee places, like Starbucks is just one, but the others, um, there's a de facto community within these coffee houses, you know, because they're, they're, they're writers there. I mean, uh, what's the author that wrote uh, Harry Potter, uh, Rowling? When she was unemployed, she went to a coffee house and spent her entire day writing Harry Potter. Now she's a billionaire. So you had, and there are other writers. So, I mean, you got, I mean, there are people looking for how, like I say, it's a de facto, it's made up of a a lot of de facto communities that just haven't been formally organized. So there's a lot of opportunity. And, like I say, you can use it as a marketing tool. Um, Now, let's see. We have another, uh, another audio here. This guy organized, um, He's a coffee entrepreneur, and well, listen to what he uh, does with buses. The national battle over inequality, the rich versus the rest of the population, has taken a curious turn in the San Francisco Bay Area, where buses carrying high-tech workers have become a symbol of the divide. NewsHour special correspondent Spencer Michaels has our story. Every weekday morning between 7.30 and 10, 
Dozens of big, sleek buses roll down Valencia Street in the heart of San Francisco's traditionally Latino Mission District and other city thoroughfares. Using bus stops created for city buses, the private coaches pick up a cargo of workers who for the most part have moved into the city and work 30 or 40 miles south of it at places like Google, Facebook, Apple, eBay, and Yahoo. The free buses, generally referred to as Google buses, are one of the perks for high-tech workers in high demand in Silicon Valley. When they began rolling six or seven years ago, they were generally praised as an alternative to crowded highways and carbon emissions from cars. But that's not the issue, says writer Rebecca Solnit, one of the first to charge that the buses were more than a way to get to work. They're unmarked and uh, with tinted windows, so you don't know who's inside. They're like a cross between a limousine and an armored personnel carrier uh, cruising around the central city. Critics say the buses are clogging city bus stops. And while the tech companies have recently agreed to pay the city a dollar per bus per stop for their use, the critics say it isn't enough to make up for the congestion they cause. So feelings are raw. The buses have sparked a nasty debate that has found its way onto YouTube with the satirical Google Bus song. The ride here was beautiful. I'm on that Google bus, hanging with the upper crust. I left my Porsche up at the condo with my poodle pups. Got on that Google bus. Solnit and others say the buses are symbols of the disparity in wealth between the new tech workers and the longtime working class residents of neighborhoods like the Mission. And she adds the influx of techies is gentrifying the city. Joe Google moves into the apartment from which um, Jose uh, Auto Mechanic has been evicted. Jose Auto Mechanic is now going to move to Vallejo and have a hellacious commute to the auto body shop in San Francisco. And no luxury bus with tinted windows and Wi-Fi on board is going to pull up at his new home in Vallejo to bring him to his office. So what you're really doing is displacing the more vulnerable people. The buses have inspired a series of protests that in turn have sparked a lively debate on the merits of the high-tech boom taking place in the Bay Area and its effects on residents. One woman wearing high-tech Google Glass was attacked in a bar after refusing to take them off. Her glass recorded the incident. She said one of her assailants told her, you guys are killing the city. At City Hall, Supervisor Scott Weiner is amazed at the hostility that some San Franciscans have shown to what he sees as an influx of new jobs for the area, workers with money to spend and new development. Most cities would be thrilled to have an industry come in um, that has good paying jobs uh, with good benefits, um, and workers who are actually paid well. Some San Franciscans say that gentrification is a symbol of a healthy economy, not a war on those without enough money. Adrian Covert is a policy specialist for the Bay Area Council, a business alliance. The Bay Area is adding jobs because it's a good place to do business, and at the same time, Silicon Valley has failed to provide for enough housing for all of its workforce. And so you see the workforce is spilling over into the surrounding Bay Area. One problem, says Supervisor Weiner, is that cities have made it too tough to develop new housing. Average rents are over $3,000 a month. I think it's very important that we focus on addressing our structural housing problems, um, which 
we as a city have created over a period of decades by making it too hard to build housing and not scapegoat the shuttles for our housing problems. But housing activists say the tech companies are culpable for changing the nature of the city, resulting in the eviction of longtime residents to make way for the young and well-paid. Aaron McElroy organizes for the San Francisco Tenants Union, which put together this rally to halt evictions, which she claims have increased 175% in the last year. The real issue is gentrification and the systemic displacement of longtime residents in San Francisco. And um, what's happening is that people are being displaced um, by a particular political economy that's benefiting from the money that tech is bringing into the city. McElroy says that landlords have found a way around city-enacted rent control using a state law that makes it too easy for landlords to evict low-paying tenants from their apartments. That, she says, is what is happening to roommates Tom Rapp and Patricia Kerman, who are being forced out of their rent-controlled three-bedroom apartment in an old Mission District building, where their rent is less than $1,000 a month. What's really happening is that long-term residents are being thrown out on the street like garbage. And it's not just me. People who have lived here two, three, four generations, because they didn't have the money to buy property, they're victims. The city is no longer a place that, you know, if you're poor, working class, even middle class, that you can afford um, to live in. For some companies in Silicon Valley, the Fuhrer over the buses and their symbolism of the divide between rich and poor have become an embarrassment of sorts as they pull up to stops near the high-tech campuses and discharge their computer-carrying cargo of San Francisco residents. Google declined to comment on the bus controversy and what it may represent and said that it had discouraged its employees from talking to the media. The company did issue several statements, including one that said it certainly didn't want to inconvenience San Francisco Bay Area residents. Nearly all employees we asked remained mute except for one operations worker. Not everyone riding a bus is, you know, rich. I can guarantee you that. Buses are not the problem, right? I think the, the jobs are the problem. If people have jobs, if people have opportunity to uh, make their income, you know, they would not be focused on the buses. As if in answer to all the criticism, in late February, Google announced it was donating $6.8 million over two years to provide free rides for low-income youth on San Francisco City buses. The Business Council's covert praised that move and the Google buses as well. I think they're being pretty good community players. I think that Google uh, and other companies have identified a big gap in the Bay Area's public transportation service and are spending hundreds of millions of dollars to address that gap by providing these buses. Meanwhile, state lawmakers from San Francisco have introduced bills to reduce evictions and as the buses roll on, the city supervisors are debating how to deal with those buses and the issues they raise. All right. Today's podcast, once again, is titled Coffee Entrepreneurs and All-Inclusive Coffee Villages. Once again, the live stream number is 619-768-2945. Now, practically every audio I've played today with a bulk of them at least. You've been, we've been giving you snapshots of various types of coffee entrepreneurs from 
a guy with a pop-up. Um, he lives in a van, but his van is his, his business. So he has he does he has a pop-up ca- uh, coffee cafe. So legally speaking, he's not bound. I mean, tied up by overly regulated places. In other words, he can go to places where he can easily get a permit to sell coffee uh, as well as live. Uh, or I'm sure there are places where he doesn't need to uh, need, need a permit and he can uh, easily sell coffee. Uh, another audio where the lady was in Chicago, but there was just too many rules and regulations for her to be economically. So she went took her business, which is on a bike, um, a modified bike, because she, she delivers coffees and teas, and she went down to what do you call it, uh, uh, Austin, Texas. Now, the last audio that we played, and then, of course, there were about three audios I played of um, coffee entrepreneurs, one in South Africa, one in Ethiopia, one in Lagos, Nigeria. Now, the ones the one in Ethiopia, which is very interesting. What he and we want to, I want to focus on their company, which I'm going to talk about right now. Uh, Bacon Brew, that's the name of it in Ethiopia. Bacon Brew. Um, yeah, Bacon Brew, which with that coffee house. They have, they charge rent, all right? They look at it as like a de facto, like, you know, you go into Starbucks and you see people working on all kinds of stuff. People have their, their, their smartphones, cell phones. Uh, some are working on books, screen, or you name it. It's only limited to your imagination of who's doing what in Starbucks. But in Starbucks, um, you know, it's free. To hang out now, they do have a, a policy, and depending on where you're at in the country, here in the United States, you know, on how it's at the discretion of the manager on duty on how this gets enforced. In other words, like in Center City, Philadelphia, downtown area, I guess based on the time of day, day or week or whatever. Typically, if you want to hang out in Starbucks and use their free Wi-Fi and go to the bathroom where they have a code, uh, because I remember the last Starbucks, uh, not the last Starbucks I went to, that was an airport. But when I hung out in in the D.C. metro area last fall, you know, in order to use the bathroom, you have to be a paying customer, and they would give you the code, and the bathroom, relatively clean, relatively clean. Okay, so and that's how that goes. But it's all to the discretion of the uh, manager. Now, the bacon brew in Ethiopia, all right, run by a black folk. Uh, although they refer to themselves as Ethiopian, not black. That black's a political USA term. Um, they charge rent. Okay, you cannot come in that particular coffee house and use the bathroom, Wi-Fi. If you, 
you're going to pay rent. So they have a rent structure from, you know, you need a day, you need a week, you need a month. But they charge rent. I see that coming here to the United States. If it is not enforced already, already. And, and now melding that into the Google bus, because part of the podcast today is titled All-Inclusive Coffee Villages. It can be any kind of village. Out in California, as the last audio, I mean audio I played, there's the Google bus. The Google bus is for Google employees. That's what it's for. I think Yahoo has something like that, or they might be partnering together. And Silicon Valley, matter of fact, if you go online, YouTube, there's talk. Now, I don't know if it'll ever get done, but there's talk of dividing, and there's been talk for years to divide the state up, California into, at one time we're talking about developing California up into three states. Now, that was prior to the dot-com revolution. Now there's some people trying to get the state of California divided up into six states. And one of those states would be renamed the region Silicon Valley, of Silicon Valley becoming its own state within California. If, But that, that happens if, and that's a big, big if, 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 the state is divided into six. But it's just talk right now. You do have some people that are getting signatures to get it on a ballot, but it, we're a long way from that day. So when we get divided up at all, we don't know. All right. But it's interesting, the few videos on internet. But the bottom line is like Silicon Valley, Google, Yahoo, uh, um, uh, all those people uh, in, are in Silicon Valley. And they, they got the money to have lobbyists, but right now, what they have, because Silicon Valley is essentially a community. It's a tech community. All right? And just like not anybody can get on the Google bus to get to work, and I'm sure they're working on because we're talking about community now and all exclusive communities. They've got the shelter, and I'm, I'm going to repeat what Connie uh, Beasley told, uh, shared with us yesterday, and I wrote them down today. There are five fundamental building blocks of a community that you're not going to be able to buy online, Amazon or anybody else. And they are in order, as you stated, food, clothing, shelter, transportation, and health care. Google Bus is just an example of what's happening right now in Silicon Valley. They've they've got that, and I'm sure they've got people working on the food, the clothing, the shelter, the transport. Oh, well, they got the transportation, and the help. Well, they probably got the healthcare covered already. Where a Google employee or any employees within Silicon Valley have got those five basic fundamentals. Now, switching back to, and I'm opening up my mic, uh, other people's mic, to all-inclusive communities, because uh, during the, uh, what, last week or whatever, 
Starbucks in Philadelphia as an example. They had a two-hour sit-in. Now, I wasn't there. I don't know what they talked about. I haven't heard anything that came out of that meeting or whatever. Um, but, like I said, Starbucks is the people that come in and hang out is basically an unorganized, untapped collection of de facto communities because we don't know what the three or four people that are sitting on the, the sofa over in the corner, we don't know what they're doing on their laptops. We don't know what the two people are talking about um, or planning, you know, and like the two of the guys that with the two guys that got arrested in Starbucks, uh, what do you call it? Um, you know, whenever it happened, they were there supposed to meet a third party to talk about real estate. Okay. So you got all type of de facto communities in there, but we, we don't know what people are in there. We just know that coffee or food, because Starbucks sells bananas or whatever, fruit, sandwiches, bottles of water and all that. You know, but coffee is the magnet that gets them in. So you don't have to become a coffee barista. But we're just saying for your particular business, and if you're spending time in Starbucks or even not, or any coffee establishment, there is a de facto, uh, I mean, what we'll see on the horizon, and it's happening already, are communities, all-inclusive communities, where they're not going to have, and no, no, no community is perfect, but we won't have, like, the, um, what do you call it, the uh, Bacon Brew in Ethiopia. You go on to Bacon Brew, to hang out there, you've got to pay rent, all right? And people know that up front. So you're not coming in there using the bathroom, and you're, and you're not, you know, a, and I'm going to call it a membership. You're not walking in there without a membership. You're not hanging in there without a membership. You're not hanging up, you know, hanging out. You're not using the bathroom. Go next door across the street or whatever. But that's the way Bacon Brew is set up. And that's run by Ethiopians. Okay, all right. I I love that business model, and I I see that because you like I said, there's no perfect business model, but that does eliminate that does eliminate somebody coming into and then they shooting a video and they, you got to call the police and this that or that. Oh, wait a minute! I got to add time to this podcast. All right, I'm going to. We're going to get into all-inclusive communities, like I say. Um, in order, as Connie put them out, food, clothing, shelter, transportation, health care. And Google has got their Google Plus, and I'm sure they are working on having uh, all-inclusive communities. As a matter of fact, in China, for years now, you have got people that works for various companies where they have dormitories set up and a cafeteria set up and a workspace set up for workers. You know, that might be doing putting together solar panels, night shoes, or various designer products that are sold in Western countries. 
They've been on this business tip for decades already. All inclusive communities for their workers. So that's where the ball is going. Um, let's go to the phone lines here. Two five three, your mic is open. Oh, it's your co-host Robin Lynn this morning. How you doing today? Fine, fine. All right, you, you got know, I, I love anything you want to add to it. Well, just, uh, just I'm, I'm loving that all inclusive and just like you said, membership. Okay, so people would go. Well, that's not fair. You know that 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 that's that's what is it? That's a, a prejudice. Okay, you can't. You guys can't do that. But a private business can conduct and let anyone in their business that they want to. Okay, who says that a business has to be open to public? Now watch this. All inclusive. Look at the Boys and Girls Club. Look at churches. Sunday churches, they go out and they send the church van out to go pick up the people to bring them to Sunday school and church, right? So follow along with Google. We can apply this across the board to everything and be completely self-sustaining. Yeah. That's all I got to say. Right, right. You're right. Many churches have uh, church buses or church vans. And uh, they go they go pick up uh, mem- members of that church. They're they're not in the business of picking up uh, going to okay. a bus stop or, or picking up um, members of the general public. So you're right. That okay. that is. Uh, and they go there for a specific of- for a specific function, just like that Google right. bus. It picks up the people and it takes them there. Boom, boom. So we have we have inclusive town, city, community, school, class, whatever, okay? And we we provide the transportation and we pick up the people and we deliver them to the school or the factory or the education or the whatever. And it's all completely self-sustaining, sustainable, completely. Yeah. We take that and we apply it across the board. Yeah. Not a business. Make your community all inclusive. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and support and I, and that community on that scale. Right. And I'll, I'll repeat it again. This comes from Connie Beasley, one of our listeners. Uh, in order. Okay. This isn't random, but this is in order. Um, uh, what What's fundamental to any type of community, um, be it Google or high tech or coffee villages or whatever, uh, the five fundamentals, as he stated, are number one, food. Um, and Connie, if you want to name these off yourself, you can just push one. Um, number one is food because people have got to eat. Number two, clothing because people can't walk around. Uh, for the most part, <laughs> make it. Um, number three, and this is an order of importance, shelter. And like I said, Google, um, Google's got the bus, and I'm pretty sure they're working on shelter because one of the reasons, well, the primary reason why Google has a bus as well as Yahoo has a bus and YouTube has a bus 
is because the transportation for their workers, but I'm sure they're working on getting a complex together uh, or a dorm type setup because this is what they do in China right now. L.A. I saw, uh, I saw a vehicle. I saw a vehicle that's um it it had it had a bed in it, a flat screen TV, sink, a little hot plate, microwave, little shower, and 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 it's on wheels, and then you could you could pay for it like Uber, so. You could take that thing and go like a business trip. You got to go to the next city or the next state. You got your hotel and your Uber all in one vehicle. Jesus. Okay? okay. I don't remember where I saw that, but if you know, so so yeah, you're exactly right. They are gearing towards uh this 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 whole driverless vehicle, driverless, you know, everything's going to be on on wheels. They're even Having the drones deliver, Amazon is even delivering to your trunk of your car. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Well, now the, the five things that that Connie, I'm, I'm gonna open up his mic right now. The five things that you're not gonna find on Amazon. So I'm gonna open up his mic. Um, and uh, okay, Connie, your mic is open. Okay, you know, I was just sitting here listening, and the thing is, uh, the young lady that uh, was just talking, I looked up an all-inclusive neighborhood. I uh-huh. looked it up on Wikipedia, and the thing okay. is, it it more or less mirrored some of the things that I was saying uh, yesterday and what you're saying today. Uh, I lived in the South, um, and the thing is, I don't know where you're from the city northern part and the thing is i don't know if you're familiar with what they used to call company towns a factory you know, I put up... from, I, I, i've done some research on those and i think i ran across um me personally i was somewhere in maryland and i ran across a place called marriottsville and the only thing that stuck in my mind was the marriott family who owns the hotels, you know, like married hotels and courtyards. But I, I didn't yeah. I don't know if that was Marriott. I don't know. Well down here, uh they used to have in North Carolina they used to have furniture factories. Thomasville, okay. Burlington. Well they have towns named after those factories. And the thing is if you worked in that factory, then what they do is they build a housing area around that factory, and it would have your grocery stores and anything that you would need as a community. You would have your banks and all of that stuff, but more or less, it was company-owned. As long as you work for that company, you could live in that town. But, you right. know, if okay. you ever or – either you, or either you could buy – you could buy the house. You had an option. But the thing is, the company will finance it. And quite naturally, by you working in a furniture factory, you could get your furniture there and all of that stuff. But more or less, I know Jimmy Dean used to sing a song, I owe my soul to the company store. Well, the company would have the store and all of this stuff. Yeah. Well, the thing is, uh, you know, what we were talking about yesterday was the black problem. And the thing Mm -hmm. is, Brother L.A., we're sitting here because we don't know our culture. You was talking about black towns and black Wall Streets and everything. 
We've done this in the past. It was just that we don't realize that we're in a war. And the thing is, like I told you before, is what is it? Uh, self-preservation is the first law of nature. Well, the thing is, right. we have been we have been trained away from that as black people through slavery and Jim Crow and through terrorism. I mean, you'd have people that would go, create a race riot, go in and, and just tear up a black business district or burn it down and kill people and lynch them and everything else. So what happened is the infrastructure was destroyed. And all you got to do is look at Booker T. Washington and, and look at what he did and how he set things up. And what he did was what's happening in the black community is we're lacking institutions. And when I mean institutions, you know you have your financial institutions, you have your educational institutions, you have your other institutions that is that is needed in order to function as a community. Well, all of that was destroyed over years. And look, the biggest weapon that they used against us was integration. Once integration came in, we left our black business districts and, and took the money out of our black business districts and took them over into the white business district. Well, that was a strategy. That, that, they used. that was a strategy. That, that we did just it. didn't realize it. And if you look at what... Uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad did with the Nation of Islam. You may not have agreed with his religion and his tactics, but what he did was he created a self-contained neighborhood, and he provided for himself. He bought the farmland. He had the the uh, pr- food processing plants, and he had the stores in order to uh, go in and use the uh, you know, distribute the products to in the retail setting. Yeah, absolutely right. He, he did create an all-inclusive community. Yeah, you, you know, buy what, your what fish and everything else. You did that, and we collectively, but they signed the spotlight on the civil rights movement with MLK and all those people. But um, where where the where the well, at least in my opinion, like you, you said, Elijah Muhammad. He had an all-inclusive community. And and the thing is, when I looked at Wikipedia, an all-inclusive community is saying the same things that we said based on those five needs. Now, they didn't list the five needs, but when you read no, through didn't. what it says in Wikipedia, it says it provides uh, all of the needs of that community based on uh, their consumer needs, and it provides employment because I don't know where you live, and I looked up where – uh, you're seeing it in Oklahoma. But the thing is, Brother L.A., the average grocery store hires about, what, 10 or 20 people in order to function. And, right. And, there, and there's most a of, lot of, uh, most, what do they call them, food deserts? There's a lot of food deserts out here. So it's like, exactly. for instance, in Tap, Oklahoma, there used to be, but there's no grocery store there now. So people had to drive about 15, 20 minutes into um, Muskogee, Oklahoma, to, to go shopping for food. Exactly, exactly. So so you, right there you have a, a, a need for 5 or 10 or 20 people. Now, a convenient mark. A convenient right. mark, most of the time when you stop to get gas, it harms about two or three people. You buy your gas, you buy your lottery tickets, and your beer, or what have you. And what you're doing is you're providing employment 
like we were talking about yesterday, that there's an unemployment problem in the black neighborhood. Well, if you go in and just apply those five things that you and I talked about yesterday and this morning, you could do away, well, you could put a big dent in, in the unemployment situation in our neighborhoods. Just, oh, just no, no, question. The matter fact, uh, no question. No question. As a matter of fact, I'm glad you brought that up because if you if you look at, um, and I want to, I, I have a, I need to do a podcast or a series on this. From based on what you just said, if you go into the typical, well, let's say a hardcore black on top of, let's say the south side of Chicago or someplace like that. All right. You go into a black neighborhood and the liquor store, Koreans or Asians own it. Okay. Chinese carryout place, they got it. Uh, convenience store, uh, they have it. And maybe the gas station, Asians have it. So these, and you might see boarded up buildings or whatever, but they've got these businesses, family based businesses, and these people are making millions of dollars. So. Exactly. Well, with that picture, I mean, why well, can't we you know, do look, the same thing? That's the mystery to me. Well, 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 we can, brother L.A., but look, let's go back to what you've been preaching ever since I started listening to this broadcast. We have been conditioned falsely by the people that is oppressing us and profiting from us, our ignorance. You pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, by your own individual efforts. Well, we're individuals competing against teams, and that's where the difference Uh, is. Now, you take a a Korean. A Korean does not go in and finance his own place by himself. Some do, but most of them don't. If you go into any town in Baltimore, they have a Korean Grocers Association. You oh, join yeah, that association. I know, like, in, um, and you might know about this, too. In Washington, D.C., not too far from um, Gallaudet University uh, or college, where they might be university now, or, or off Florida Avenue, the warehouse district in D.C., um, that Asians got a lockdown on that. You got, you got some Africans and some Caribbeans in there, but overall, it's, it's, it's Asian, and a lot of people that live, of course, that neighborhood is getting gentrified now. But for decades, it was basically low-income blacks that were basically patronizing them because that was close to their neighborhood. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, we see the examples. We see the examples that that we had back in the day, and I, I, I keep referencing this, uh, W.B. Du Bois' Economic Cooperation Amongst Negroes, the study that he did nationwide. Booker T. Washington had uh, a study that he brought out every year called the Negro Yearbooks. And Booker T. Washington did a a study called Philadelphia Negro. In fact, one of the guys on uh, Blog Talk, Maurice White, he said that the blacks had so concentrated their communities and had gone in and and organized it in such a manner that if you were there per capita, which means individual income, uh, if you were put it in today's money, each black family in Philadelphia would be worth $900,000 a year because of the way they had organized their communities. 
So the thing is, all I'm saying is, is that what happened is because we have been steered away from self-preservation is the first law of nature, which if you look at it, that's what that's what we call white supremacy. The thing is, what happened is we have gotten away from looking at a situation and saying, look, these are the problems that we need to address, and we need to address it as a group. Whether it's 100 or 1,000 or maybe 5 or 10, the thing is, because we're, we have been conditioned to think that individually we can go in and put up a, a grocery store or or a ware, food warehouse or what have you, most of the time when we go into business, we go into business under finance, which means we can't serve the needs of the people. So when you can't do that, blacks are automatically going to go to a safe way or giant or ever what have you in the community because you don't have enough money to stock your shelves to support their needs. And I know you're familiar with the same warehouse. I've been to that warehousing district where you talked about right off of K Street. You go in there right. and those Asians have – it have their uh, wholesale warehouses in there and everything else. In Baltimore, they got it. And the thing is, what they do is every individual store owner is a member of that warehouse. And what they do is the warehouse makes the money, and they split it up amongst themselves every quarter. So they can't go out of business, and they buying it in bulk and everything else. But we don't sit down, and we don't strategize. And say, look, let's see who we can get in a certain geographical area that thinks the same way we think. And let's put the finance into it. Because, look, uh, I can't think of the guy's name, Valentine, I think, Warren Valentine, I think that's his name. He did a survey. I don't know where he got it from. He said that in a 15-year period, black churches put $420 billion in in white banks. Every week yeah. you got yeah. a collection. You got a due structure called collections that they put in a pan every Sunday and they give all of that money to white banks that's financing all of these other things in white communities. And I'll end on this note. When you say gentrification, you can't gentrify a neighborhood that people own. If you own your houses or you own that property and you organize, they can't gentrify that area unless they have to pay a big amount of money. And the thing is, they are going to pay that amount of money because they want to make a profit out of whatever area they gentrify. So when we sit here and talk, and you hear all of these other people talk about, well, you know, we got to leave it to the Lord, or either we got to go and let the universe do what they need to do and everything, that flowery stuff. No. Organization takes hard work. And if Marco Scarvey could could organize a worldwide movement of black folk, then we can do it with today's modern technology, easy. All we have to do is lay out the plan, make sure that everybody, like Stephen Pleasant says, has a stake in it. And uh, I think that's what he said, uh, uh, best of interest in it. Yeah, best of interest, yeah, best and, of interest, yeah. Which is the same thing you're saying, a stake in it, yeah. Yeah, we can turn this whole thing around. It's not hard. Everybody else is doing it except us. You know, so when we sit here and we talk about poverty, 
Yes, we're supposed to be uh, compensated for our reparations. But while we're fighting for that, we can do our own thing and, and create our own reparations by just thinking smart and getting out there and working hard. And I'll let you, uh, you know, give somebody I, else. I agree break. with that 100%. Oh, before you go, with the name for us, once again, in order, those five, those five fundamentals for any, uh, any type of community. It's a hand. Food is the most important. Clothing, shelter, transportation, and then concerning health care. And the all thing right, is, all of those things, all of those, all of those things, produces a, a revenue stream all the time. They, they never, they never cease uh, creating a revenue stream because that's something you need on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely right. I'm thinking about health care because health care, I mean, there's always somebody sick. Um, yeah. Well, whatever dealing with health, you're right. That's a regular, ongoing thing. Um, you're and right, Brother L.A., look at it this way. The biggest, the big, the biggest revenue stream in health care is what? Pharmacy. Because oh. when you get sick, you got to have medication, and the profit margin in pharmacy is is the highest of any product that you're going to sell. You're right. <laughs> People with their with their prescription medication. Oh uh, man, thank you. Kind I, I wrote down. That's why when the show started, because you know I had to put your number back in my phone because I had it in my other phone, but that phone was stolen last year. And with this new phone I have right here, I thought I had it, but I'm I'm locking in. But um, yeah, thank you, man. That like I say, you you can talk some stuff here today. Um, let's go to our next call at area code four seven. Your mic is open. Uh, good morning, LA. This is Viada with Soul Purpose Healing. Um, thank you, uh, brother, for that one wisdom that you just shared. And uh, I want to suggest instead of health care, which is really sick care in this country, that this community that we're talking about with all these uh, necessities in it, we have a wellness center. Instead of promoting pharmaceuticals as the solution, uh, a wellness center in this type of environment would be uh, wiser to help people prevent, not only prevent illness, but educate them on how to use herbs and, and natural remedies instead of going to drugs. So that was, uh, listening to that, and just because your show is on coffee, just coffee alone, uh, you know, some people would say, well, coffee's bad for you, but really there are a lot of benefits to coffee. I've been reading a lot about and, and watching videos on coffee all the benefits to coffee outweigh uh, the 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 concerns that people have unless a person has adrenal gland problems. Then, then they don't want the caffeine uh, in their system too much too often. But if they don't have adrenal gland problems, they're not struggling with stress, overload, stress, cortisone, then the coffee is really a very beneficial uh, drink to have every day and no more than two or three drinks a day, they say, to, because of the caffeine. And so uh, I would recommend people, you know, definitely go along with the coffee village and, and have that as part of the wellness center even, that there have been, there's different types of coffee. They make coffee with mushroom extracts in it, which makes it even more healthy. 
And so there's so much we can do in these communities. I'm looking at right now, I'm getting ready to start a food co-op in my community because people, we're, we're quite a distance from, from the grocery store, and I'm, I'm, I'm passing grocery uh, farmers markets and all that. So I'm about to get my neighbors together, and we're going to start a co-op in our neighborhood. So that was my suggestion. Not health care. It's sick care in the United States. Let's do wellness centers in these communities. Okay, well, like Connie said, it, it, you know, you can do it, start things with one, maybe five people. I, I think you get better results when you start small anyway. Uh, right. Um, you know, that way, because it's, it's got to be a chemistry of minds anyway. But um, yeah, I, I just, the reason why I put the coffee out there uh, with today's thing was like, you know, this. As an, as an example with Starbucks or other coffee houses, people that are hanging out there, like I say, it's, it's really a collection of de facto communities that are within any coffee house. But we have, you know, we don't know who's in there for what, you know, who's right. Yeah. I mean, you can do a, and, you and can you do know, a screenplay uh, community, yeah. you know. And, you know, so uh, coffee also – People people should be aware that coffee dehydrates, and I think a lot of people drink so much coffee because they're inflamed. When you when you have inflammation in your body, coffee actually reduce helps reduce the inflammation because it it takes the the swelling, it takes the water, it reduces the amount of water in that area or in your body, and it takes the swelling down. From the body, so a lot of people are inflamed these days because of their diet and all that. But drinking coffee helps reduce the inflammation, dehydrates the body, and I think that's why Starbucks and any coffee house is popular because people get relief from drinking that coffee. And if they don't drink too much, they're going to benefit from it. Okay, uh, Robin. Um, now you have a community. Actually, you're connected to several communities, so um, I guess you, you deal with a lot of entertainers or what have you. Uh, what do you think about some innovative ideas? I mean, what kind of communities can pop up out of the people that you, you work with? Robert, Did you, you just there? ask me a question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What kind of communities can pop up uh, in your online network? Oh my goodness! I've um, um, I've had hip hop communities. I've had um, um, oh, wait a groups. Now, Rob, let's stop right there. Okay. Okay. The hip hop. There's a lot of hip hop people out there, and those those five fundamentals that Connie put out there, you can set up hip hop communities that address those five fundamental pillars. Around the world, right? Yes, and hip hop, hip hop addresses those elements. That's what hip hop is. Mm-hmm. It surely okay. does. Food, housing, clothing in 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 the street, in the community. They're very community minded, civic minded, community building. Yep, yep, yep. So the the hip hop uh, is 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 one. Um, I've had. Um, uh, another community of authors, uh, uh, children. I mean, school education. It's just um, amazing 
because these the creators and the people that are in music, what they're creating or what their their music is about is their life. What's going on in the community? What's going on in the economy? And so and so, it, it's just really really amazing. So from that, you've got all all forms. I probably deal with 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 everybody. I, I can probably say that if you if you've been on the internet, you've come through Robin Productions, and in that the whole world that that's the community that 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 I that comes through mine the whole world. <laughs> L.A. <laughs> well, you know, there's a movie that I've, I've done on, I mean, uh, played some audio before I got to renew it. But uh, there's a movie that you can watch on. Um, wait a minute. Let me add some more time on. Um, called 99 Homes. 99 Homes is, is based on um, um, a real or I guess combobulation of people. Um, 99 Homes essentially is about the foreclosure crisis that happened here in the United States. And and one of the, you know, one of, you know the primary person that was starring in the movie, that particular was a, a guy, his son, and his mother. They were living together. They lost their house to foreclosure. So they didn't have any place to go. So they had enough funds to go to uh, a motel. Um, this was supposed to take place in Orlando, Florida. And um, when they got to the motel, the motel, and they got a lot of these residential motels all across the United States. When they got to the motel, the majority of the people that were living at the motel were other people who had been foreclosed on. All right. And you had all kinds of skill sets there. This guy was a carpenter, and he did a lot of handyman work. But they had all kinds of professions, all kinds of people with skill sets, you know, people babysitting for each other, cooks and all that. But the interesting thing is, for some reason, I guess people have to be educated on this so they can open up their minds. They were in, it, it was a community. It was a community. They had more than enough people to go out and buy some land somewhere in Central Florida. Uh, in Viata, you know about Central Florida where you can go out to these rural areas. They could have bought, let's say, 40 acres of land, really, uh, or even, you know, real easy, and the, and then use these five principles that, because they had the skill set in there of people that can build houses, you have people that can grow food. It was all in that residential motel. So uh, maybe we can use some of the ideas, because one of the audios I played today was the guy had, I mean, a couple of guys, they had a pop-up coffee cafe, you know. And the, the, the other audios, I mean, videos on YouTube where people have, pop-up boutiques. They have a van. They live in a van and they go to wherever and they pop up and they have their clothing boutique, coffee boutique, sandwich boutique in the van and that, that's so they get to travel, meet people, network, keep their overhead low and make money all at the same time. So 
Mm-hmm. Um, like I say, there's a lot of ways to go with that. Um, Connie, did you have another mm-hmm. comment? Yes, I, I just want to say one thing. Um, you know, Brother L.A., listening to you talk, <laughs> look, we have a direct line to the land that grows a lot of coffee beans, and that's Africa. African-Americans uh-huh. right. should really corner the market with coffee, not only setting up the coffee shops, but just going in and roasting the coffee and grinding it into coffee and just putting it on shelves. So, you know, we aren't using our talents and and using our talents to take advantage of the resources that we have a connection to. And I'll end on this note. Um there's a famous preacher that you're probably familiar with that lives where well, she's gone now. I guess her son took it over or somebody. But she lived right off of uh, not too far from Redskin Stadium. She had a big campus there. I went to that church, and I think she had something like at least 20,000 members. What you and I are talking about, that's a closed community. Just the customer do, base alone. Do you remember alone. who that was? Do you remember the name of that, that, yeah, that, Rev- that preacher? Uh, Reverend Peoples, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, they, they were large, man, yeah. Well, that's a customer base right there. All of those adults that was in that church, I know it had to be at least 15,000 or 20,000 people in that church. That, that was a big... That was a built-in customer base right there, not not counting the surrounding community that was all black. But the thing is, you know, our leaders, uh, you know, common sense is common, but it's not so common with common folks. All she was thinking about was sending people to heaven, God rest her soul. And the thing is, well, she could have made heaven right here on earth. The black community, not only her, but if you look at a, a, there's a lot of black mega churches around. Because you got Fred Price. Yeah. Now, he's got a school, but Fred Price, T.D. Jakes, uh, in Chicago, you had... Creflo uh, Dollar. You passed on Creflo Dollar, but... Yeah, Creflo, forget about them, though, bit. because Johnny they're not going to the, do anything for the community. Not them, guys. <laughs> you can forget they, about them. Mm-hmm. Creflo Dollar and those, those mega churches, they, they're... they're, they're um, um, they, they, they're, they're the prime ones that can turn around and jump off these communities, all inclusive, with businesses, all of that, completely sustainable. However, these guys are on a whole other trip. They don't went a whole other route with that thing, and it's only for their pockets. So they're not; those guys are not interested in. And in, in, they don't went five hundred one c three too. So. I'm gonna shut up. You're right. John, the late Johnny Coleman uh, in Chicago, she had, she was probably one of the first mega churches out of anybody, black or white, in the United States uh, when she was living. Um, That's right. That's right. And I but, think the church you, is still you, going, but yeah, we have a lot of churches that are de facto. They are communities, even a little school. Yeah. But for some That's reason, right. we, we haven't moved and, out of that yet. 
And brother LA, they generate enough funds that they could they could finance whatever project they wanted to finance, and yep. that could be the hub for the whole general area if they if they had a mind to do it. But I'm just giving yep. you examples of how we miss out on opportunities, and we yep. can't fault the Asians, <laughs> we can't fault the white folks. You know what's interesting here because a lot of these churches, uh, matter of fact. We did uh, a few podcasts uh, over the years. Uh, it's a film called uh, Flag War. It took place in Columbus, Ohio. And one of the main people that they took in that film, I think her name was, uh, her last name was Mitchell. Um, she, when she died at 39, she was, um, the city got her for uh, code violations on the 50. Her parents left her like many, many people. There were five churches within walking distance of her house. So a lot of them, speaking about shelters, I know a lot of pastors uh, get phone calls every week, if some not every day. Pastor, I need help from getting put out. I don't... The closest I've heard of a housing ministry uh, would be like a Salvation Army, which has dormitories, but you're only there for a little part of the time. Matter of fact, we're going to pick back up on on these five leads and get into them tomorrow. We're not going to get in the car tomorrow, but get in on these five leads. I'm going to play this last of the audio uh, to begin this podcast today on the black church. Chicken wings for that money, even though they was no good. But you do get something for your money. But when you put your money in the church bucket, what do you get back? Hope and a future after you die. And my position on that, if I have to die to experience heaven, I don't need that religion. Mm. Anyone who tells me that I should be content with accepting hell on earth when the white man has his heaven here, and the Chinese man has his heaven here, and the Arab and East Indian has his heaven here, and they're even building their heaven in my ghetto? And you're telling me I got to die in order to experience what they are getting right now? That's a religion I don't need because that's a religion for servitude. And so we have to put the black church to task and ask them, what are you doing without Jesus' money? Let me tell you what they're doing with your Jesus' money. Every black church in America has their money in a white bank. It is the white banks that are funding the regentrification ethnic cleansing movement. So all of us go to church. We put $3 million in the church coffers every Sunday. $3 million goes to a white bank every Sunday. And guess what they do on Monday? They take $3 million of black people's white Jesus money, and they give loans to white land developers and businesses and entrepreneurs to come into the ghetto where the church is located, buy up all the property, and force grandma out on the street homeless. Now, grandma been going to that church for 30 years. Grandma been giving that church $50 every Sunday. And lo and behold, grandma had to finally face the reality that it was your Jesus money that put your ass on the street. Mm. 